Section 26 of Great Ghost Stories by Joseph Lewis French. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 26. Claremond by Théophile Gautier. Part 1. Brother, you ask me if I have ever loved. Yes. My story is a strange and terrible one and though I am sixty-six years of age, I scarcely dare even now to disturb the ashes of that memory. From my earliest childhood I had felt a vocation to the priesthood, so that all my studies were directed with that idea in view. Up to the age of twenty-four my life had been only a prolonged novitiate, Having completed my course of theology, I successively received all the minor orders, and my superiors judged me worthy, despite my youth, to pass the last awful degree. My ordination was fixed for Easter week. I had never gone out into the world. My world was confined by the walls of the college and the seminary. I knew in a vague sort of way that there was something called woman, but I never permitted my thoughts to dwell on such a subject, and I lived in a state of perfect innocence. Twice a year only I saw my infirm and aged mother, and in those visits were comprised my sole relations with the outer world. I regretted nothing. I felt not the least hesitation at taking the last irrevocable step. I was filled with joy and impatience. Never did a betrothed lover count the slow hours with more feverish ardor. I slept only to dream that I was saying mass. I believed there could be nothing in the world more delightful than to be a priest." I would have refused to be a king or a poet in preference. My ambition could conceive of no loftier aim. At last the great day came. I walked to the church with a step so light that I fancied myself sustained in air, or that I had wings upon my shoulders. I believed myself an angel, and wondered at the somber and thoughtful faces of my companions, for there were several of us. I had passed all the night in prayer, and was in a condition well-nigh bordering on ecstasy. The bishop, a venerable old man, seemed to me God the Father leaning over his eternity, and I beheld heaven through the vault of the temple." You well know the details of that ceremony, the benediction, the communion under both forms, the anointing of the palms of the hands with the oil of catechumens, and then the holy sacrifice offered in concert with the bishop. Ah, truly spake Job, when he declared that the imprudent man is one who hath not made a covenant with his eyes. I accidentally lifted my head, which until then I had kept down, and beheld before me, so close that it seemed that I could have touched her, although she was actually a considerable distance from me, and on the further side of the sanctuary railing, a young woman of extraordinary beauty, and attired with royal magnificence. 
It seemed as though scales had suddenly fallen from my eyes. I felt like a blind man who unexpectedly recovers his sight. The bishop, so radiantly glorious, but an instant before, suddenly vanished away. The tapers paled upon their golden candlesticks like stars in the dawn, and a vast darkness seemed to fill the whole church. The charming creature appeared in brief relief against the background of that darkness, like some angelic revelation. She seemed herself radiant, and radiating light rather than receiving it. I lowered my eyelids, firmly resolved not to again open them, that I might not be influenced by external objects, for distraction had gradually taken possession of me until I hardly knew what I was doing. In another minute, nevertheless, I reopened my eyes, for through my eyelashes I still beheld her all sparkling with prismatic colors and surrounded with such a purple penumbra as one beholds in gazing at the sun. Oh, how beautiful she was! The greatest painters who followed ideal beauty into heaven itself and thence brought back to earth the true portrait of the Madonna never in their delineations even approached that wildly beautiful reality which I saw before me. Neither the verses of the poet nor the palette of the artist could convey any conception of her. She was rather tall, with a form and bearing of a goddess. Her hair, of a soft blonde hue, was parted in the midst and flowed back over her temples in two rivers of rippling gold. She seemed a diademed queen. Her forehead, bluish-white in its transparency, extended its calm breath above the arches of her eyebrows, which by a strange singularity were almost black and admirably relieved the effect of sea-green eyes of unsustainable vivacity and brilliancy. What eyes! With a single flash they could have decided a man's destiny. They had a life, a limpidity, an ardor, a humid light which I have never seen in human eyes. They shot forth rays like arrows, which I could distinctly see enter my heart. I know not if the fire which illumined them came from heaven or from hell, but assuredly it came from one or the other. That woman was either an angel or a demon, perhaps both. Assuredly she never sprang from the flank of Eve, our common mother. Teeth of the most lustrous pearl gleamed in her ruddy smile, and at every inflection of her lips little dimples appeared in the satiny rose of her adorable cheeks. There was a delicacy and pride in the regal outline of her nostrils bespeaking noble blood. Agate gleams played over the smooth, lustrous skin of her half-bare shoulders, and strings of great blonde pearls, almost equal to her neck in beauty of color, descended upon her bosom. From time to time she elevated her head with the undulating grace of a startled serpent or peacock, 
thereby imparting a quivering motion to the high lace ruff which surrounded it like a silver trellis work. She wore a robe of orange-red velvet, and from her wide ermine-lined sleeves there peeped forth patrician hands of infinite delicacy, and so ideally transparent that like the fingers of Aurora they permitted the light to shine through them. All these details I can recollect at this moment as plainly as though they were of yesterday, for notwithstanding I was greatly troubled at the time, nothing escaped me. The faintest touch of shading, the little dark speck at the point of the chin, the imperceptible down at the corners of the lips, the velvety floss upon the brow, the quivering shadows of the eyelashes upon the cheeks. I could notice everything with astonishing lucidity of perception. And gazing, I felt opening within me gates that had until then remained closed. Vents long obstructed became all clear, permitting glimpses of unfamiliar perspectives within. Life suddenly made itself visible to me under a totally novel aspect. I felt as though I had just been born into a new world and a new order of things. A frightful anguish commenced to torture my heart as with red-hot pinchers. Every successive minute seemed to me at once but a second, and yet a century. Meanwhile, the ceremony was proceeding— and with an effort of will sufficient to have uprooted a mountain, I strove to cry out that I would not be a priest. But I could not speak. My tongue seemed nailed to my palate, and I found it impossible to express my will by the least syllable of negation. Though fully awake, I felt like one under the influence of a nightmare who vainly strives to shriek out the one word upon which life depends. She seemed conscious of the martyrdom I was undergoing, and, as though to encourage me, she gave me a look replete with divinest promise. Her eyes were a poem, their every glance was a song. She said to me, If thou wilt be mine, I shall make thee happier than God himself in his paradise. The angels themselves will be jealous of thee. Tear off that funeral shroud in which thou art about to wrap thyself. I am beauty. I am youth. I am life. Come to me. Together we shall be love. Can Jehovah offer thee aught in exchange? Our lives will flow on like a dream in one eternal kiss. Fling forth the wine of that chalice, and thou art free. I will conduct thee to the unknown isles. Thou shalt sleep in my bosom upon a bed of massy gold under a silver pavilion, for I love thee and would take thee away from thy God, before whom so many noble hearts pour forth floods of love which never reach even the steps of his throne. These words seemed to float to my ears in a rhythm of infinite sweetness, 
for her look was actually sonorous, and the utterances of her eyes were re-echoed in the depths of my heart as though living lips had breathed them into my life. I felt myself willing to renounce God, and yet my tongue mechanically fulfilled all the formalities of the ceremony. The fair one gave me another look, so beseeching, so despairing that keen blades seemed to pierce my heart, and I felt my bosom transfixed by more swords than those of Our Lady of Sorrows. All was consummated, I had become a priest. Never was deeper anguish painted on human face than upon hers. The maiden who beholds her affianced lover suddenly fall dead at her side, the mother bending over the empty cradle of her child, Eve seated at the threshold of the gate of paradise, the miser who finds a stone substituted for his stolen treasure, the poet who accidentally permits the only manuscript of his finest work to fall into the fire could not wear a look so despairing, so inconsolable. All the blood had abandoned her charming face, leaving it whiter than marble. Her beautiful arms hung lifelessly on either side of her body, as though their muscles had suddenly relaxed, and she sought the support of a pillar, for her yielding limbs almost betrayed her. As for myself, I staggered toward the door of the church, livid as death, my forehead bathed with a sweat bloodier than that of Calvary. I felt as though I were being strangled, the vault seemed to have flattened down upon my shoulders, and it seemed to me that my head alone sustained the whole weight of the dome. As I was about to cross the threshold, a hand suddenly caught mine, a woman's hand. I had never till then touched the hand of any woman. It was cold as a serpent's skin, and yet its impress remained upon my wrist, burnt there as though branded by a glowing iron. It was she. Unhappy man, unhappy man, what hast thou done? She exclaimed in a low voice, and immediately disappeared in the crowd. The aged bishop passed by. He cast a severe and scrutinizing look upon me. My face presented the wildest aspect imaginable. I blushed and turned pale alternately. Dazzling lights flashed before my eyes. A companion took pity on me. He seized my arm and led me out. I could not possibly have found my way back to the seminary unassisted. At the corner of a street... While the young priest's attention was momentarily turned in another direction, a negro page, fantastically garbed, approached me, and without pausing on his way, slipped into my hand a little pocketbook with gold-embroidered corners, at the same time giving me a sign to hide it. I concealed it in my sleeve and there kept it until I found myself alone in my cell. Then I opened the clasp. There were only two leaves within, 
bearing the words Claremond at the Concini Palace. So little acquainted was I at that time with the things of this world that I had never heard of Claremond, celebrated as she was, and I had no idea as to where the Concini Palace was situated. I hazarded a thousand conjectures, each more extravagant than the last, but in truth I cared little whether she were a great lady or a courtesan, so that I could but see her once more. My love, although the growth of a single hour, had taken imperishable root. I gave myself up to a thousand extravagancies. I kissed the place upon my hand which she had touched, and I repeated her name over and over again for hours in succession. I only needed to close my eyes in order to see her distinctly as though she were actually present, and I reiterated to myself the words she had uttered in my ear at the church porch. Unhappy man, unhappy man, what hast thou done? I comprehended at last the full horror of my situation, and the funereal and awful restraints of the state into which I had just entered became clearly revealed to me. To be a priest, that is, to be chaste, to never love, to observe no distinction of sex or age, to turn from the sight of all beauty, to put out one's own eyes, to hide forever crouching in the chill shadows of some church or cloister, to visit none but the dying, to watch by unknown corpses, and ever bear about with one the black soutane as a garb of mourning for oneself, so that your very dress might serve as a pall for your coffin. What could I do in order to see Claremond once more? I had no pretext to offer for desiring to leave the seminary, not knowing any person in the city. I would not even be able to remain there but a short time, and was only waiting my assignment to the curacy which I must thereafter occupy. I tried to remove the bars of the window, but it was at a fearful height from the ground, and I found that as I had no ladder it would be useless to think of escaping thus and furthermore, I could descend thence only by night in any event, and afterward how should I be able to find my way through the inextricable labyrinth of streets? All these difficulties, which to many would have appeared altogether insignificant, were gigantic to me. A poor seminarist who had fallen in love only the day before for the first time, without experience, without money, without attire. Ah, cried I to myself in my blindness, were I not a priest, I could have seen her every day. I might have been her lover, her spouse. Instead of being wrapped in this dismal shroud of mine, I would have had garments of silk and velvet, golden chains, a sword, and fair plumes like other handsome young cavaliers. My hair, instead of being dishonored by the tonsure, would flow down upon my neck in waving curls. 
I would have a fine waxed mustache. I would be a gallant. But one hour passed before an altar. A few hastily articulated words had forever cut me off from the number of the living, and I had myself sealed down the stone of my own tomb. I had with my own hand bolted the gate of my prison. I went to the window. The sky was beautifully blue. The trees had donned their spring robes. Nature seemed to be making parade of an ironical joy. The place was filled with people, some going, others coming. Young beaux and young beauties were sauntering in couples toward the groves and gardens. Merry youths passed by, cheerily trolling refrains of drinking songs. It was all a picture of vivacity, life, animation, gaiety, which formed a bitter contrast with my mourning and my solitude. On the steps of the gate sat a young mother playing with her child. She kissed its little rosy mouth, still impearled with drops of milk, and performed, in order to amuse it, a thousand divine little puerilities such as only mothers know how to invent. The father, standing at a little distance, smiled gently upon the charming group, and with folded arms seemed to hug his joy to his heart. I could not endure that spectacle. I closed the window with violence and flung myself on my bed, my heart filled with frightful hate and jealousy and gnawed my fingers and the bed covers like a tiger that has passed ten days without food. I know not how long I remained in this condition, but at last, while writhing on the bed in a fit of spasmodic fury, I suddenly perceived the Abbé Serapion, who was standing erect in the center of the room, watching me attentively. Filled with shame of myself, I let my head fall upon my breast and covered my face with my hands. Romol, my friend, something very extraordinary is transpiring within you, observed Serapion, after a few moments' silence. Your conduct is altogether inexplicable. You, always so quiet, so pious, so gentle— you to rage in your cell like a wild beast. Take heed, brother. Do not listen to the suggestions of the devil. Fear not. Never allow yourself to become discouraged. The most watchful and steadfast souls are at moments liable to such temptation. Pray, fast, meditate, and the evil spirit will depart from you. The words of the Abbé Serapion restored me to myself, and I became a little more calm. I came, he continued, to tell you that you have been appointed to the curacy of C. The priest who had charge of it has just died, and Monsignor the bishop has ordered me to have you installed there at once. Be ready, therefore, to start tomorrow. To leave tomorrow without having been able to see her again, to add yet another barrier to the many already interposed between us, 
to lose forever all hope of being able to meet her, except, indeed, through a miracle. Even to write her, alas, would be impossible, for by whom could I dispatch my letter? With my sacred character of priest, to whom could I dare unbosom myself? In whom could I confide? I became a prey to the bitterest anxiety. End of Section 26 Claremond, Part 1